Hello and welcome to the Curator of Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco Radio. This week, we celebrate the newsstand with Sandeep Garg from Shriji News. I actually wanted to introduce coffee a long time ago to the store anyway, because I felt it was something that worked very well with magazines and papers. It's kind of found its own way through COVID and the whole disarray of things and the chaos that we went through. Plus, we look at the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel. The Abraham Accords heralded the dawn of a new age of peace. But I believe that we are at the cusp of an even more dramatic breakthrough. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a foreign desk explainer this week. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu have both signaled a strong desire to normalize relations between their countries. Andrew Muller explains why this would be consequential and the hurdles both parties face. The Abraham Accords heralded the dawn of a new age of peace. But I believe that we are at the cusp of an even more dramatic breakthrough. We should probably, as a species, cease slapping our hands to our foreheads and exclaiming gadzooks every time something remarkable happens in the geostrategic sphere. Remarkable stuff happens in the geostrategic sphere so often that it is barely remarkable. One would not need to have lived long to recall such manifestations of the hitherto unthinkable as the collapse of the Soviet Union, the dismantling of apartheid, the reunification of Germany, war in Yugoslavia, peace in Northern Ireland, the UK leaving the EU, Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Fill in your own favourites. Even by those standards, however, the apparently looming normalization of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia is a big whoop. Such a peace will go a long way to ending the Arab-Israeli conflict. It will encourage other Arab states to normalize their relations with Israel. When we make peace, the whole Middle East changes. We tear down the walls of enmity. Such an occurrence has long served indeed as the hypothetical scenario by which other unlikely prospects have been judged. One might have bleakly observed that there was about as much chance of a particular thing happening as an Israeli mission opening in Riyadh or some Saudi princeling presenting his credentials as ambassador in Jerusalem or more likely due to Palestinian sensitivities, Tel Aviv. But it appears to be very much happening. For us, the Palestinian issue is very important. We need to solve that part. And we have a good negotiation. It's continue. Till now, we're going to see where it will go. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has recently breezily asserted that every day we get closer. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has used phrases like possible, likely and on the cusp. This week, Israel's tourism minister, Haim Katz, arrived in Saudi Arabia for a conference, the first official acknowledged public visit to the kingdom by any Israeli minister. 
The first thing to acknowledge is that despite whatever reservations one may reasonably harbour regarding the personages at the centre of this looming rapprochement, it is probably, on balance, a good thing inasmuch as normalised diplomatic relations between any two countries are better all round than seething hostility and general mutual shunning. The second thing to acknowledge is the reservations one may reasonably harbour regarding the personages at the centre of this looming rapprochement. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is an impetuous thug who has wrecked a neighbouring country, Yemen, for no readily discernible reason and ordered the murder of a journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, who displeased him. Benjamin Netanyahu is a belligerent, self-serving, long-past used-by-date barnacle who is governing in cahoots with people he well knows to be certifiable lunatics, at least partially in an effort to keep himself out of prison. Which brings us to what might be in it for the prospective partners in this putative handshake. Most obviously, there is Iran, which for both Israel and Saudi Arabia is the enemy's enemy by which friendships are forged. Though Saudi Arabia did recently re-establish ties with Iran in a deal brokered by China, each still sees the other as their principal regional rival. And Saudi Arabia, like Israel, further perceives Iran as a potential mortal threat. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has already said that if Iran develops nuclear weapons, then Saudi Arabia must. If they get one, we have to get one for security reasons, for balancing power in the Middle East, but we don't want to see that. The possibility of Iranian nukes is, of course, one reason that Israel already has nuclear weapons, even if it officially pretends otherwise. Saudi Arabia also hopes to leverage American enthusiasm for normalization for a defense pact with the United States, which would include fewer restrictions on what American kit Saudi Arabia may purchase. Saudi Arabia is also seeking assistance for the development of a civilian nuclear program. When Israel looks at Saudi Arabia, it sees economic opportunity, potential further cooperation on intelligence and defense matters, and a means of further marginalizing Palestine as an issue. I, I think the Palestinian thing is uh, brought in all the time. It was always brought in. Uh, and it's sort of a, a checkbox. You know, you have to check it to say that you're doing it. Is that what is being said in corridors? Is that what is being said in, uh, uh, in discreet negotiations? I don't know. You tell me. What's uh, being the said? answer is a lot less than you think. Which is where we return to the theme of pioneering diplomatic outreach in the Middle East. This week also saw Saudi Arabia's ambassador to Jordan, Naif al-Sadari, arrive in Ramallah to formally extend his remit by also becoming Saudi Arabia's first ambassador to Palestine. It remains to be seen, however, whether Saudi Arabia views this appointment as a means of including Palestine in the deal or bouncing Palestine into going along with it. Saudi Arabia has put uh, different conditions uh, regarding normalization. Uh, one of these uh, conditions is really, uh, you know, the end of Israeli occupation and uh, the materialization of the state of Palestine. Uh, if that's really the case, then uh, that's really very important. 
I hope that the Saudis will stick to that to that position. There has been understandable anxiety about what an Israel-Saudi Arabia deal would mean for Palestine, even more so than there was about Israel's recent agreements with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan and Morocco. Saudi Arabia coming to terms with Israel would appear to further underpin suspicion that the Arab world at large has ceased to find the Palestinian cause useful or interesting. The Palestinians should have all the powers to govern themselves and none of the powers to threaten Israel. This means that in whatever final settlement, peace settlement, we have with the Palestinians, Israel has the uh, overriding security power in the entire area, ours and theirs. Otherwise, we collapse, they collapse. If that is the case, it is difficult to entirely blame anyone. Attempting to be an active ally of Palestine right now presents a choice of two interlocutors. The West Bank regime of Mahmoud Abbas, an ossified crook and crackpot now 18 years into his four-year presidential term, or the Gaza cult of Hamas a wretched sack of theocratic fascists much keener on waging a futile campaign of disorganised violence against a largely indifferent foe than they are on figuring out any way to meaningfully improve the lives of the 600,000 largely blameless people locked in with them. On form, however, it is probably too optimistic by half to hope that such leadership as Palestine presently possesses might react to any realignment of the Middle East with fresh, constructive and pragmatic thinking. You won't have a Palestinian state, you'll have an Iranian uh, uh, terror state. It is not a done deal yet. Netanyahu has to sell it to the other parties of his governing coalition, amid whose company Netanyahu is the relatively reasonable and compromising one. Though Saudi authorities don't have to deal with such nuisances as free media and voters, a Saudi public raised on decades of institutional hatred of Israel may take some persuading. For Monocle Radio... I'm Andrew Miller. And from our show Monocle on Saturday, a new exhibit has been unveiled by Somerset House this past week, showcasing Britain's forgotten fashion and culture. The Missing Thread, Untold Stories of Black British Fashion, details the work of black British designers in UK fashion. It's an interactive experience featuring work from contemporary black British designers and highlights the work of Joe Casely Hayford spanning over 40 years. Monaco's Staff Chungu went to Somerset House and filed this report. Black British designers have been significant to UK fashion and culture, with Nicholas Daly, Bianca Saunders and Sol Nash in recent years the new generation. While they and many are household names, there are still those whose talents were not acknowledged or appreciated in the wider British fashion industry. Enter the missing thread, untold stories of black British fashion, homed at Somerset House in London, which features British culture in the eyes of black creatives. It charts the shifting landscape of black British culture and the unique contribution it has made to Britain's rich fashion design history. It's curated by the Black Orientated Legacy Development Agency, also known as BOLD. The co-founders and curators of the exhibition are Harris Elliott, Jason Jules and Andrew Eby. Jason and Andrew spoke to me about the event and the conception of the theme, The Missing Thread. I mean, the project really is it's like it's been sort of ongoing, so it's a kind of a lived experience thing. And there was just a realisation three or four years ago that there's an opportunity to sort of elevate black fashion culture to another level. And then post-George Floyd, 
was really an opportunity to talk about these things and for a proper conversation to be engaged with. So it, it started with a conversation with the British Fashion Council and Caroline Rush, actually, about putting on this exhibition that celebrates black culture historically. The Missing Thread is essentially about those elements that have not been included in history, in the timeline. And so our goal was to actually just kind of bring them to light, but also to tell the story of British fashion through a black lens. That was the, one of the most important things. The exhibit is split into four parts. Home, showcasing tradition and familiarity. Tailoring, presenting the work and creativity beyond a piece of garment. Performance and nightlife, each taking their own unique space while interwoven with the other. From music and literature to anime, fashion and culture. Andrew explains how it was possible to contain so much of black British culture in four parts. There was no way we could tell the whole story. So we agreed very early that one of our kind of statements is we cannot be completist. The other thing we knew that we didn't want it to be like a museum. So we didn't want it to be like, this is a history of black fashion. In 1970, the center of it is this idea around culture, around black culture and fashion style. But it's nuanced with our struggle. And when we understand that struggle, like our parents will understand that struggle, there's a generation that will understand that struggle even more. And maybe another generation that's heard about the struggle, but has never really correlated it with the arts. Not just a standard exhibition, the use of images, archived fashion pieces, music and visual elements sets the missing thread apart from traditional displays. One particular image that is striking out of the exhibition is a lady with the blue hair, sitting behind a full set of lips. The image was taken by Eileen Perrier and is the forefront of the exhibit. I spoke to Eileen about the image and the origins of her collection, which is an entirely different concept compared to the missing thread. The actual series, I did it 25 years ago, and I did it at the Afro Hair and Beauty Show in Alexandria Palace, and I did a series of portraits. So yeah, I was interested in my own identity and how I kind of fitted into the, into the world. And um, I remember when I was around 19, I used to wear wigs, you know, and I was inspired by my auntie who was a midwife and used to do the night shift. So she would always be wearing wigs. So that I guess I was kind of influenced by her and also my mum would wear wigs when she was going to parties and stuff like that. So that's kind of where the concept, I guess, of like documenting black women who, I would, who you wouldn't necessarily have seen at that time in advertising, on billboards. You know, I wanted to sort of document people who I knew were out there but weren't being represented. Whereas now, as you can see, like many of the billboards that we have are now showing a diverse range of models. The end of the exhibition is a significant one. Two rooms dedicated to the work of Joe Casley Hayford, a black British designer whose work was often missing in the midst of other British designers such as Westwood and McQueen. Casley Hayford died in 2019, and this is the first time his archive is presented, a career spanning over four decades. I asked Andrew and Jason the choice to feature Casey Hayford work at this exhibit. Joe, for all of us who were part of certainly that generation, was the, the go-to icon. So as we see fashion and the way we see fashion, we cannot see ourselves in fashion unless we see Joe Casey Hayford. So Joe Casey Hayford is actually the start point for so many black British designers. So any one of our generation 
is indebted to Joe's presence, but also his genius and tenacity. If you superimpose the map of Joe's career and the things that interested him on the map of the missing Fred and the spaces and the way we explored those themes, then you'd see a, a real kind of similarity. One kind of begets the other. Joe's interests touch on pretty much everything that we explore in this show. In addition to the archive by Casely Hayford, original commissions by contemporary black designers are woven throughout the show, celebrating the generational lineage of black creative excellence in British fashion. I asked the curators what they hoped for the public to take away from the exhibit. Here's what Andrew had to say. Black designers and black artists and black photographers have always worked in a slightly different way, where there's been a need to um, expose or talk about uh, culture from a different perspective. The place of politics in, in the show, I'm hoping, really allows visitors to deeply understand the struggle from a different perspective. It's an exhibition that we hope in the end is, is a celebration rather than a, you know, a negative space where people feel defeated. For Monocle in London, I'm Steph Chungu. You are listening to The Curator, Monocle Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. The book collection of late Rolling Stones drummer Charlie Watts is set to go up for auction today. Watts died last year, aged 80. He'd been playing with the rock and roll band since their formation in the early 60s. The huge book collection contains first editions of some of the world's most iconic works, including F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby and Arthur Conan Doyle's The Hound of the Baskervilles. Well, to tell us a bit more about that, we have our culture expert, Robert Bound. He is also Monaco Magazine's contributing editor. It's going to be super exciting at Christie's today uh, in London for this this Charlie Watts auction, which, as you mentioned, it has got a, a, an embarrassment of riches, both literary and unexpectedly musical as well. We think about Watts as a drummer, and that's not... Uh, I mean, is it a hugely contemplative uh, job? I don't know. But t- <laughs> tell us about Charlie Watts. We didn't have to dance around much, I suppose. <laughs> it was kind of focused on one thing. I Absolutely. I mean, but you wouldn't necessarily have him done as a bibliophile. He clearly was a book lover. Mm. Tell, him, uh, tell us about that side of, of Watts. Well, Watts was, a, Watts was famously the quiet one in the Stones. Uh, he was the guy that mostly went back to his hotel room after a gig rather than going out and carousing. So he had a lot of time to read. Um, most of the time that he was you know, back home between tours and between recording, um, he, he had his foot up on a, probably a, quite a handsome footstool and quite a handsome Chesterfield sofa um, perusing these some of the volumes that are, that are going up for auction um, today. And he was also... Also, he studied at the Harrow School of Art and he was his first job was as a graphic designer, a com- commercial graphic designer. So he had a keen eye. And some of the things that, that jump out, you mentioned the, the Great Gatsby, a first edition signed by Scott Fitzgerald to the original Gatsby um, that's, that's going up for auction, top price of £300,000, by the way. Um, and you mentioned the first edition of Arthur Conan Doyle's Hound of the Baskervilles. Both of these and many of the other books, there's a lot of there's old spy novels like Eric Eric. Ambler, there are first editions of Graham Greene, Wood, Wood, P.G. Woodhouse, all of these things are not only wonderful works of fiction and a specific era of British fiction that, that seems to tap into Watts' imagination, 
but they've got wonderful, wonderful covers. This is a sort of a golden age, not only for the for the for the books themselves, but for the cover design, for the jackets. Um, for there was a huge um, sort of explosion in wonderful graphic design that came before um, that Charlie Watts studied it, I suppose, but w- of which I'm sure he was a fan, which I'm sure make, made these this era of editions, this sort of early twentieth, late nineteenth, early twentieth century stuff, so attractive to a man with such a, a voracious visual and literary appetite. Mm. And do you think that that he went about purposefully trying to buy up books that would increase in value? Uh, or was this an accidental collection? It seems like an accidental collection to me. I don't think what's what what's famously only got became a, mem- a rolling stone once they could once they sort of split their food rations down the middle a, a few times so that they could afford the five quid a, 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 a week to, to to pay him as a drummer such was their desire to have him because he was a jobbing drummer of, of high regard in, in England in the early 1960s so he, he wasn't short of a bob or two when they when they didn't have two 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 halfpennies to rub together Charlie Watts was on a five a week so I think this is definitely the way that it's the, the some of the some of the items in it the way they've been arranged he was a completist for 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 green i think woodhouse agatha christie but most of them have a pleasant scatter, scattergun approach, as much as Charlie Watts seemed to be fastidious about most things. His collection seems to be one of love. Mm. Yeah. And th- there's not just books, of course. No, there's there's amazing stuff. There's um, you know uh, uh, there's expectedly amazing back catalogue of records. Most of the stuff that are coming up for auction, you feel that the estate of Charlie Watts, um, the daughter and, and, and the rest of the family have probably been pretty sentimental about some of the things that really, really, really were close to his heart. But you have wonderful stuff. There are 12-inch acetates of Duke Ellington's first ever performance, which is an amazing thing. There are signed Cole Porter lyrics. There are um, amazing amount of kind of groove and swing kind of records i mean he was a, he was a jazz he was a jazz drummer that happened to play with the rolling stones which is a thing often repeated never quite believed until you actually kind of hear him in isolation away from keith and mick and the rest of the band um but those are the, yeah so 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 the, and that collecting gene and that love for the visual because all those things the, the billy holiday album covers the ella fitzgerald album covers a lot of those blue note and pre blue note album um uh, uh, sort of jazz covers look they're works of art i mean mm. they're absolute works of of art that well, let's face it, a band like the Rolling Stones, as wonderful as they sound, never quite made, made album covers <laughs> on a par, on a par, it, despite Charlie being on one of the, one of the best ones uh, with, a, with a donkey with drums on it. Um, but yeah, I, I, what, what I get from this collection is, is a, a fastidious depth of knowledge and a love of subject matter and also just an irresistible love for things that look wonderful too. Rob Bound, thank you very much indeed. And on the stack this week, we celebrated the newsstand. And one of the items was one of my favourites. It's my friend and owner of Shriji News, Sandeep Garg. I think we've added value to what we were doing already with the magazines and the publications. I think the coffee has got its own kind of following. People like not just the fact that the coffee is what it is, but I think the fact that how it's given, there is a lot of kind of care taken by the staff and it just extends what we stand for which is a community place. And it helps us to promote ourselves, not just as somebody just doing one thing now, but diversification and making it even more reason for people to come to us. Talking about diversification, I mean, let's talk about the events or special events. I mean, only you know a week or two weeks ago, you had 
Burna Boy releasing his magazine here, which is fantastic, it's a huge yeah. name. How does these collaborations work? Is it quite organic or how does it work? Because every week there seems to be like an exciting event here. I think what has happened is people have seen or I feel people are trying to do things that are more, again, for reiterating, community-led. They don't want to appear as they're doing huge things which are not available to everyone. So the smallness of it works very well with our size. Generally, I think it is organic. It's where people see someone doing something and they have it on social media. So you kind of get an idea of how it can be done for themselves. And we've been very fortunate that most of what we've done is through recommendation and very organic. We don't necessarily go out looking for people. And, you know, to the credit of everyone who's been here and done things, they've gone on and spoken about it. We've had very, very different things. We had Club Rochambeau, which is like a virtual tennis club, having a physical space to burn a boy, a music legend in his own right, being here, signing his publication. And I think that's where it's a nice way to embrace brands that are actually also doing things that connect them back and for them to promote print. Because essentially the whole ethos of the place is still around print. It is very much at its heart a magazine seller, bookseller, and a promoter of the written word. And it feels to me that magazines and some publishers, they want to be here first, perhaps. We have the most recent, uh, and by the way, we're hearing the noise of the coffee, right? Yes, that's, that's great. We like some ambient sounds. Tell us about the latest collaboration of Selfridges, Yellow, Yellow Pages, right? Yellow Pages. Selfridges' creative team have been a loyal customer base for us for many, many years. They come here for their input. We chat and we discuss things. And I think from that perspective, the person or the team behind this actual publication have been customers of ours, the new of the location. And in a way, they have somehow decided that this is where they would like to release this publication. It's a directory by Selfridges of the places that they recommend. And I think it's one of a kind. And uh, I think it's, uh, we were very happy that they chose us feature this. Sandeep, one thing I've been noticing in shops like yours, even around the world, I mean, the, the merchandising part of the thing, I think that's quite important because, to be honest, I, I even might go and buy myself a t-shirt because I like it, I like the place so much that I mm. think people want to have a t-shirt, you know, a mug or, or whatever. Can yeah. you tell us about your merchandising? How did it work? Because I guess you worked with an artist for that. Uh, we have our own social media person. She's also a graphic artist. So she's behind the design in collaboration with Poets and Punks, who are our collaborative or partner. So they are a publication-led company as well. And that's how we got to know them many years ago. We saw the work they were doing and it's kind of quirky, it's fun, it kind of lends itself to producing things that are not at the very high end price point wise, but also in a way give our customers a sense of belonging to us as a brand, if we can call ourselves that, or as part of something that they support, patronize through their time. And another thing, every time I come, by the way, it's busy. I mean, it's never empty, the shop. But uh, do you still have kind of the, the casual customer who come here just to buy a copy of the Guardian, the Telegraph, or, you know, this more kind of day-to-day -day perhaps what you used to have in the past? A lot has changed, and that I would say mainly due to COVID. 
and a lot of the things that we used to have in terms of customer base has changed immensely. But the regularity of the customers has stayed, it's just shifted from print more to coffee. But we do get a good crossover. A lot of the people who are having coffee will like magazines and buy magazines. And I actually wanted to introduce coffee a long time ago to the store anyway, because I felt it was something that worked very well with magazines and papers. It's kind of found its own way through COVID and the whole disarray of things and the chaos that we went through. And one thing about magazines, I think, especially this more the biannuals, sometimes you do have old copies that you can, that people can come and, yeah. and, and ask you and they, yeah. you might even sell it as yeah. well, right? Yeah. Maybe not many people know that. Um, yes, it is something that I would like to build on more. The archive, the back issues. What I have been finding quite often though, it's the more monthly ones and the ones that the cover stars are known for are the ones that people are searching for. Content-wise, it isn't that content-led. So you, it's difficult with the limited size that we have to carry everything. But I keep back issues of some of the products that I like, some of the publications that I like. And finally, I would like to ask you what any plans for the future is just to perhaps build up the space you have here which is, let's say, it's a fantastic space. We're sitting here in between, right, the shop at the front yeah. and the back where you can buy merchandise. I mean, it's a, it's a lovely space. Yeah. I think for the time being, it's just getting this right. You're never 100% doing what you think you should be doing. So if we can get that pinned down as much as we can, then maybe we look at an extension, an expansion somewhere. But within the set of space that we've got this location, I think we'll just keep on reinventing it and grow organically. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. We are back here with the curator, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And on Entrepreneurs this week, we had a little bit of a Brazil special. And I had the pleasure to speak with Cici Freeman from a brand that all Brazilians know very well, Granado, the country's oldest pharmacy. And they are now expanding to the UK. Granado is a very big heritage brand in Brazil. We have some products like a foot powder, our bar soaps that are very well known by Brazilians and that have been going past from generation to generation. And so a lot of people, when they see Granado, it reminds them of their grandparents or their parents and nowadays even their babies because we are very big there also with a, a baby line. And it's fascinating, although it's a traditional brand, every time I go to Granado shop, there are new products as well. So I think that's also quite important, perhaps to move the brand forward, right? Yes, we've become a very giftable brand, I think, especially because of our packaging. We have a very big archive that serves as inspiration for all of our designers. And so 
because of that, we've become very giftable and also we explore Brazilian ingredients and the tropical side of Brazil, Rio de Janeiro, and I think it really makes us stand out a little bit. And I think it's what has made people come back and love the brand so much. And Sissy, tell us about the international expansion, so especially to the UK, because I know the brand is present in France, in Portugal, but now you have three places in, in London or in the UK where you can buy the products and great places as well, very central. Tell us a bit more about this idea and especially because there is a British connection to the brand. <laughs> well, yes, my father and me as well yeah. were British. He left the UK, I guess, Long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of decades ago, he married my mother that's Brazilian. Mm -hmm. And in 1994, he ended up acquiring the brand and transforming it into this beautiful story. And so it's also very special to be back in the UK. We were invited last year to Liberty. So we've been there for over a year and it's been great. We've been uh, learning and what the UK consumer loves, what the best sellers are and all of the aspects. And we're very excited to have these three locations, which is Liberty, Regent Street and the Hamyard Hotel. Let's talk about the British customer. Okay. That, I'm always very curious about that. How different is the British customer to a Brazilian one or even the French one, for example? So one of the things is Brazil is a very hot country. And because of that, Brazilians, they really love fresh fragrances, citrusy, but also woods, especially Brazilian women. They're very well known for using men's fragrances. And so one of the aspects of our perfumery is that all of our fragrances are genderless. We don't really market to men or women. So it's whatever the consumer feels that they love. And I think what we've noticed with the British consumer is a little bit different. We have noticed that, yes, people like some of our fresh scents, especially Jardim Real, which is, you know, the royal garden that is very flowery, but also fresh flowers with orange flower blossom. But at the same time, some of our really stronger fragrances like Bohemia, which is inspired by the Bohemian neighborhood of Rio, which is Lapa, where our original factory used to be, really are huge success here are oud as well, which in Brazil would be around the third or fourth fragrance here is a, a real big bestseller. And then there's always the bossa and carioca, which are two fragrances inspired by the beaches and the vegetation of Rio. And those, I think, are bestsellers all over. So it really depends. But we've really seen that the British consumer is very interested in the ingredients, but also the stronger, more powerful fragrances. And we're here at the Hamyard shop, but I know there's also a new shop in Regent Street. I mean, that's definitely a prime location. What can you tell us about that shop? Well, we're very excited with these two locations. The Regent Street, it's a pop-up. It stays until January. And we're very excited to have a location where we'll be able to receive our consumers, do events, showcase our new launches. We have a lot of things coming up. And especially since this past year, we've learned what the British consumer loves. It's also allowed us to do a couple of brand extensions and line extensions that will be arriving soon. For example, maybe Oods might be having some new things. Who knows? We're very excited with these locations, but... If we'll also be having some news coming soon, hopefully. So <laughs> I'm already excited as well. And and of course, you see, we do have some Brazilian listeners as well. What about in, in Brazil? What what are how do you see Granado today in Brazil? Because we know Granado is big in mm -hmm. Brazil. 
Are you optimistic? What can you tell us as well from the Brazilian side of things? Well, on the Brazilian side of things, we're also expanding this concept of the perfumery. And so we now have 90 shops in Brazil. And all of these shops have these fragrances exclusively. So some Brazilians who probably haven't been back to Brazil, this might not be the Granado they remember from 10, 20 years ago. But these products are also all available there. But we do have some new products that are inspired by here that go back and forth. But in Brazil, we also have a, a lot of new things coming up and exciting things. That's amazing. Sissi, and finally, just because we're here at the shop, can you tell us one of your favorite products? I know there are many. I know it's difficult, mm -hmm. but perhaps you can take me through that. Well, my all-time favorite is one of our fragrances called Nostalgia. It's very second skin, has a woody note, but it's also very, um, I find it to be, I don't know, very chic. It's not something that empowers, it's very intimate. So I, I, I love it very much. But I think... My spritz myself, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I think also one of our, our star products, if you're not looking for a gift, because then I think mm. we have many great options, but I think our diffusers are also very nice because they really do fragrance the room in such a nice way. One of my favorites is Bossa. Uh, I think it reminds me of summer, and I think since the summer here is also coming to an end, I think it's a great way for you to take the summer into the winter and the cold months at home. And for Monaco and Culture this week, we celebrated the 40th anniversary of Stop Making Sense, Jonathan Deem's film with Talking Hats, which is often regarded as the greatest concert movie of all time. Rob Bound was joined in the studio by Will Hodgkinson and Siren Hans to discuss the new 4K restoration of the film. Hi. I've got a tape I want to play. David Byrne has a tape. He'd like you to hear it. And the rest is musical history. It's the wonderful Stop Making Sense. And to talk us through it and the importance of concert films and documentaries and the whole world of music on the big screen, I'm joined by Simran Hans and Will Hodgkinson. Welcome both to the programme. Thank you. Lovely to have you both here. I think this is the first time you've met... IRL, you did a pandemic program. I think we did a pandemic Zoom so you've, time. You've, you've gazed at each other across a crowded Zoomosphere. Yeah, just about. Okay. Exactly, nice. and now we're in the studio. And now we're in the studio. And it's a wonderful, wonderful reason to be here. Jonathan Demi's Stop Making Sense is being re-released into cinemas. I guess this is ageing, isn't it? But it's the 40th anniversary, I suppose. Of it. Or maybe, it's, maybe they just dusted off the celluloid. But... In what cinematic space, Simran, are we with Stop Making Sense? It's very spare, it's very clean. It is a soundstage at Warner Brothers' lot in early 1980s Los Angeles. What is this doing, I wonder, that other concert films isn't? Well, maybe a good place to start is to talk a little bit about the restoration first and why it's kind of being brought back to life because it's sort of widely regarded as the essential, quintessential concert film. And actually... They have restored the film, they've cleaned up the sound quite a bit and they've made it appropriate for IMAX, which is where I recently saw it. And I had seen it before and was sort of, you know, happy to go to a late night screening and see it on an absolutely ginormous screen. 
And I was really struck by how it is just a really good movie. Mm. I like Talking Heads, so obviously I was going to enjoy this film and enjoy watching it again. But it is such a good film, full stop. So it's directed by Jonathan Demme. It's not his only concert film. Maybe you'd like to know. Yes, I would. (laughs) He also has made concert films for Neil Young and also Justin Timberlake. But this is the one that he's sort of really remembered for. And he was a fan of the band. The band were a fan of him. So that's how the kind of collaboration began. And even if you've not seen the film, you probably recognise bits in pop culture, right? The big suit, (laughs) David Byrne dancing with a light, with like a kind of tall lamp. We can talk about this in detail a bit later, but this must be the place. It's very affecting that. The choreography is beautiful with that standard lamp. Who knew it could be so romantic? Exactly. And and as you said, Rob, it kind of starts very spare. So, you know, in the clip we heard Psycho Killer and that's the first song that the set opens with and it's just burn on stage with an acoustic guitar. And slowly as the set progresses... You get more people coming to join the stage. The set dressing becomes more elaborate. It becomes more of a party. And um, as the film kind of progresses and, and builds, you get a sense of the relationships between the band and also their kind of relationship with the audience as well. It's amazing. Exactly. Well said. It is. It's sort of an incremental vibe, isn't it, I suppose, um, starting so sparely. Will, what's your um, memory of Stop Making Sense? It, it obviously is kind of musical lore, one of the greatest and most critically acclaimed bands, so important in the time that this film was made as well in the early 1980s. What, what are your reminiscences of this most the sort of peak music film? It was a different approach to a concert. That's mm. what I thought, thought he did. You know, so uh, the way in which he comes on, you know, it's a, it's a boombox, isn't it, initially, when he's just, yeah. uh, you know, with Psycho Killer, so there's no band. i got there. a tape I want to play. That's right. <laughs> and then, you know, later on, everyone remembers the giant suit. So what it felt like to me, and Talking Heads were an art rock band, you know, they were pop-ish, but unusual ideas coming in. It felt like it was, you know, the film is quite straightforward in a way. But what's so fascinating about it is the way that the concert is structured in a theatrical fashion. So it, it, it does build and there's a sense of fun to it. But you can tell that the whole thing has been very, very highly stage managed. Yeah. Which isn't typical for rock concerts. Rock concerts tend to be sloppy and everyone comes on. Hey, man, how's everyone doing? And <laughs> it's not like that. This is a different, a different thing. And so as much as it's a, a brilliant concert film... It's a film of a brilliant concert. It's not that complicated, do you know what I mean? And I think that was that sort of changed things because it was this idea of what you could do in a concert in with imagination as opposed to a huge set. Now, you know, I have to cover concerts all the time and most of the money now, and especially big arena concerts, is put into this big production. You know, it's put into the lights and so on. With this, I didn't really think that was the case. It's much more that it's put into the theatrical imagination of the whole thing. We're back here with the curator to the design world. We sent Naomi Shu Elegant to report from Find Design Fair Asia. It is the second edition of the regional trade event. The second edition of Find Design Fair Asia took place in Singapore over the weekend. Hundreds of designers and brands gathered at the Marina Bay Sands Convention Center to talk furniture, interiors, and design. One highlight of the fair is its Emerge series, which spotlights up and coming Southeast Asian designers including Melvin Ong, who founded the Singapore-based studio Desenaire. I talked to Melvin at the fair and asked him what he's working on right now. I think the recent work would be the one that I'm showing here right now. 
This one is a bit different because um, I'm trying to incorporate a bit of creative technology in this. It's basically a light that doesn't want to behave how it ought to behave. <laughs> so it was more of a hypothesis of, I think we tend to kind of express certain uh, feelings or towards objects. So like, like how uh, a car is almost uh, referred to as almost like an entity rather than a, an object. So I was wondering like, you know, what if objects that we express like personal, we kind of like impress of this kind of soul in, in the object, react and, and behave like people. So I was thinking like, what if a ceiling light has a fear of heights? Then how would that behave then? So I think it was that kind of questioning that got me thinking that maybe that could bring me to a place where the classification of lighting could be a bit blurred and it could like uncover something different. So the light that I have now, it's, uh, it's kind of like a ceiling light. Um, so when it's up uh, suspended high, um, it doesn't turn on. It's only when you lower it, then it starts to go brighter and brighter. Yeah. So I think the idea is like uh, when it's closer to um, the ground or closer to people, then it starts to warm up. Next, I spoke to V. Hoku, the founder of Dad's Woods, which makes bespoke wooden furniture from locally sourced timber in Malaysia. I think Malaysia especially has a, a lot of uh, very good quality timbers, where a lot is, of its value was uh, overlooked for the past decades. So uh, for me, it's like about reviving the importance and the value that uh, these timbers one has. Yeah, yeah. How would you describe the timber? What are the characteristics? What does it look like? Hmm. Uh, they are all very dark and deep in color. Um, they are all very hard timbers, uh, as of most uh, tropical wood. Um, and we work with uh, wood that has uh, a density of uh, thick and above. So like thick wood, uh, merbau, chengal, uh, all these timbers that was uh, once very popular uh, in construction from pre-colonial and during the colonial period. The collection that we are displaying this time is from uh, the Tales of Mandalay collection. It's a collection that uh, we launched uh, in September. Um, and it's a Burmese theme collection. Uh, that centers around like uh, Burmese-inspired design, and we work with a material called merbau, which is a Malaysian hardwood that is uh, that has like a deep red, orangey uh, color. I also met renowned Filipino industrial designer Kenneth Kubumpoy and asked him about his distinctive furniture designs. My design is uh, it's uh, all handmade, and they're inspired by nature travels they're all very um, organic and whimsical i would say when they see my product people recognize it i think right away it's quite a distinctive yeah style. there's a it's very distinctive it's always um playful can you talk about some of the pieces that you've brought with you to the fair so we're launching a new chair made out of woven carbon fiber called spin and it's inspired by those spirograph um, drawings you know you did as a kid and it's a very light chair in terms of weight and it's made for indoor and outdoor and then we brought a few of our classics like the dragnet chair or the yoda which people all know the bloom how much yeah. do you have to think about materials when you're designing actually we always start with the materials yeah it's a material or a weave you know or a certain um 
sometimes the silhouette, you know, and then we see what, uh, which materials to choose that best reflect the original inspiration and aesthetic. With the indoor-outdoor furniture, what kind of considerations are there where it has to work in both settings? Yeah, so <laughs> the problem with most outdoor furniture is they're made of, uh, it's always plastic, it's always artificial, and people don't like to have those things indoor. So the challenge is to make them very homey, sustainable. So now in the past few years, there's a trend to put you know, this indoor look outside, and I think that's a challenge for designers. How do you characterize the design scene in the Philippines? <clears throat> the Philippines, where there's there's a love now for things that are local, and people are appreciating, you know, um, homegrown design, whether it be in fashion or, or furniture, interiors, and I think you see that in in Asia too. There's the growing love for natural furniture, so I always say uh, sustainability, of course, is very important, but I think manufacturers in Southeast Asia were sustainable even before they knew what the word meant. Because everything here is made is handmade, natural materials, you know, there's no plastic that came from the West. And for food neighborhoods this week, we had to Krakow Old Town, in the historic Jewish quarter Kazimierz. One of Poland's oldest cities, Krakow has embraced international cuisines over the decades while honoring local culinary traditions. Our guide this week is Monaco's Julia Lasica. Kraków, Poland's second largest city and the historic seat of the country's royalty. It is a classical masterpiece, replete with the architectural jewels of the Romanesque, Renaissance, Baroque and Gothic ages. Largely undamaged during German occupation in the Second World War, the Stare Miasto, the old town, brims with the pinks and blues of stained glass windows, whilst winged stone angels hover above ambling residents. Up in the heights of the royal castle on Wawel Hill, Visitors wander through vine-draped courtyards and hidden crypts, passing by gold-flecked tapestries and cavernous Ottoman tents. It often might feel like you've stepped into the illuminated pages of a medieval fairy tale. But in the streets outside, Krakow's culinary scene is by no means stuck in the past. Having thrown off any lingering cultural greyness of its Soviet past long ago, the city's kitchens, restaurants, bars and cafes are firmly in the cosmopolitan future, They play host to international cuisines and delicious modern culinary experiments mixed in with Polish traditions. So, let's take a walk through the city together and see what treats its old buildings hold in store for us. Mornings in Krakow start off with pastries. Just outside the centre of the city, Tartelet Café on Ulica Stradomska serves up traditional Polish sernik, cheesecake and savoury breakfasts as well as favourite patisserie delicacies. Choose from pistachio eclairs, raspberry-laden cakes and scones stuffed with blueberries and sweet crumble. At Christmas time, Tartelet's bakers carefully decorate gingerbread cookies to have with your regular morning coffee. With breakfast over, it's time for a wonder. Crossing over the leafy green ring that encircles the city centre, make your way across the main square and over the tram lines until you reach Kazimierz, Krakow's historical Jewish quarter. Kazimierz was once one of the world's most vibrant Jewish settlements, but Nazi occupation left the district hollowed out and a shadow of its former self. It remained in a state of disrepair under communist rule until the late 1990s. Now, however, Kazimierz is once again one of Poland's most exciting neighbourhoods, 
contemporary Jewish culture is flourishing, and an annual Jewish culture festival is held every summer over 10 days with everything from DJ parties to lectures and tours. Round the corner from Temple Synagogue is a local secret, the Tokyo Tower, a simple but mouth-wateringly good Domburi stop. Each dish comes with miso and pickled cucumber slices. If you're in the mood for an amble, head back into the center in the afternoon. Next door to the American bookstore on Ulica Swofkowska is Nitz Kawiarna Księgarnia, a Polish-Ukrainian literary cafe perfect for desserts and coffees. Their green courtyard tucked behind the cafe regularly hosts events and readings, so it is the perfect place to stay on into the afternoon for a relaxed pre-dinner tipple. Now the light is fading and evening is drawing on, so the streets will become busier as Krakowians head out for supper. Join the flow and make your way to the foot of Wawel Castle, where tapestry-lined restaurant Podnosem treats diners to Polish classics with a modern touch. Try the duck with lentils and beets or zander with green beans. Alternatively, let yourself be carried further on to the other side of the Vistula River that flows through Krakow. You'll immediately notice Hotel Forum, a brutalist hunk of a building that has become a love-hate symbol of Poland's communist past. It lay abandoned for a decade until a group of young Krakowians decided to use it to host Unsound Music Festival. These days, Forum is constantly buzzing with activity, hosting a complex of bars, restaurants, concert venues and exhibition spaces. Explore the maze of stalls and cocktail stands inside or grab a drink and sit on the sun decks for a relaxing end to your day-long Krakow adventure. Nazdrowie. And finally, here on The Curator, Ivan Carvalho takes us to California to visit the Sea Ranch Lodge and the coastal community that inspired it. Set on the northwest corner of Sonoma County, overlooking the Pacific, the Sea Ranch Lodge awaits visitors traveling along the famous California Highway 1. Here, some 100 miles north of San Francisco, The scenery is a blend of coastal meadows, redwood forests, and majestic bluffs, with trails leading to sandy beaches. Against this backdrop, in the early 1960s, an ambitious residential housing project was born, Sea Ranch. On the site of a former sheep ranch, the developer, Oceanic Properties, sought to build a residential settlement dedicated to modernist principles that placed nature at the center. The company brought in a team of professionals led by landscape architect Lawrence Halprin, who developed a master plan focused on living lightly on the land to respect the surrounding environment. Building materials were drawn from nature, in this case, wood that was native to the region. A team of professionals, including Bay Area architect Joseph Escherich, made an initial 10 homes, drawing inspiration from the rustic barns found in the area. The simple wood frame homes had modestly scaled cedar or redwood-clad shed roof designs, built without overhangs to deflect the strong prevailing winds often encountered there. An integral part of this initial phase in the residential development was the Sea Ranch Lodge, which served as a gathering place for the first homeowners. Constructed in the same regional mid-century style, the building featured the same untreated wooden cladding used for the single-family residences, in order to match the color tones of the surrounding redwood trees and local terrain. Built in 1968, the lodge played a central role in the community, housing a post office and information center. Later, it was expanded into a hotel. As the success of Sea Ranch grew, 
and new residential plots were developed. Today, the area counts over 2,000 homes. The lodge itself underwent changes, but the structure has retained the original elements laid out by the project's founders. It recently completed a five-year, multi-million dollar renovation to revamp the 17 guest rooms to preserve its mid-century design principles. A familiar beacon still on the lodge's facade is its original modernist logo, two seashells back-to-back connected to a ram's head that referenced the sheep which once grazed the land. Inside the hotel, guests are greeted to rooms exuding a simple organic luxury with custom headboards, window benches, and desks built by carpenters from a California workshop in Santa Cruz and which are paired with mid-century Hans Wegner elbow chairs. A newly arranged dining area, bar, and cafe feature more colorful details and skylights while still retaining the wood floors in order to maintain the spirit of the Sea Ranch project and its emphasis on the natural. Large windows still dominate the common areas, allowing visitors the chance to enjoy the site's most precious commodity, the scenic panoramas of the Pacific Ocean outside. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by San Impe and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you for listening.